tell a lot about a person by their shoes, where they've been, where they're going, how they got there. I do think Forrest Gump is probably my favourite theologian of all time. <laughs> Some of the stuff he says is just so real, it's so true, it's so kind of about life and you, you get drawn into it, it's great, isn't it? And I think what he says about shoes is... is, is is real. Right from a young age, like this little girl here, right from a toddler age, we love to slip our feet into mum's shoes or dad's shoes and feel what it's like to walk around in someone else's shoes, don't we? We have this fascination with shoes. And then as we get a little bit older, have you noticed this? We wear shoes to make a statement. So if you wear a pair of these, the statement you're making is, I'm successful, I'm powerful. You wear a pair of these, and the statement you're making is, I'm available, possibly. <laughs> You wear a pair of these, and the statement you're making is, uh, well, I don't know, what's the statement you're making? (laughs) I'm a fashion victim. I don't have to try too hard. Um, I'm I'm comfortable, probably, (laughs) is what you're saying. Uh, If you wear a pair of these, um, the statement you're making is, I've just sent in my application for the Anglican clergy. I don't know. I'm going to get emails for that. I'm sorry, I'll take that back. But we make statements with our shoes, don't we? Uh, In fact, why don't you take a moment just to have a peek at the shoes of the person sat next to you? And why don't you just, just tell them what statement you think they're making? Tell them what statement they're making with their shoes. You see, uh, I gathered... uh, I gathered together my three boys this morning. I've got an 11-year-old, a 15-year-old, and an 18-year-old, and I gathered them all together, and I said, look, boys, look what I'm wearing this morning, a pair of Converse. What statement do you think that makes about me? So they all went quiet and looked at each other and then looked at me, and then my 11-year-old will say anything to anybody. He said, Dad, you're having a midlife crisis. That's your statement. <laughs> which only Joe could say, which is great. But our shoes do make statements about ourselves, don't don't, don't they? And what I want to do is I want to have a look at these this morning. See, these are flip-flops. And people who wear flip-flops definitely make a statement. But you know what? If you're a flip-flop wearer, and you wear flip-flops regularly, especially when the sunshine comes, if you're a regular flip-flop wearer, you are at some point going to need some of this. And one of these. Because if you walk around in flip-flops for too long, your feet get filthy. They get really grubby, so you need, uh, you need to have a good old clean at some point, otherwise you're in trouble. But I've discovered that flip-flop wearers, flip-flop wearers are the kind of creative people, aren't they? All the creatives love to wear flip-flops. The flip-flop wearers are the free spirits. The flip-flop wearers are the non-conformists. And I want to introduce you to a character in the Bible who was a flip-flop wearer. He was a free spirit, he was a creative, he was certainly and non-conformist. And I want us to slip our feet into his flip-flops, spend some time with him, walk a mile in his flip-flops, and just see if we can learn some of the lessons that he learned. Because he had an encounter with Jesus that changed everything. And just maybe, just maybe, if we slip our feet into his flip-flops for long enough, just maybe we can have a similar encounter that could change everything uh, for us as well. His name, the Bible describes him as John the Baptizer, or John the Baptist, as it says in some translations. There's not a lot written about him. I mean, you'll struggle to find a tremendous amount written about John the Baptizer in the Bible. There's only a few chapters here and there, but I would hazard to say, in fact, I would be quite confident in saying, John the Baptizer, apart from Jesus, was the greatest man that ever lived. 
That's quite a statement, isn't it? And some of you who've been around church long enough, and maybe even call yourselves a Christian and read the Bible, some of you would say, well, Duncan, hang on a minute. Greatest man that ever lived. He's only written about a little bit in the Bible. What about some of the big heroes of the Bible? What about like Moses? Moses led all the people out of Israel. I mean, he was huge. What about David? He was a king. How can you say John was the greatest man that ever lived? Well, I'm just, I'm just going with the master. Because Jesus says in John chapter 7, verse 28, I tell you, Jesus added, John is greater than anyone who ever lived. Wow. When I read that a few weeks back, I thought, wow. Jesus called John the greatest man that ever lived. And so if, if, like, if you're like me, when you read a statement like that, you think to yourself, you think to yourself, so what makes him great in the eyes of God? What is it about John that makes him great in the eyes of God? Because it started to well up in me. I want people to call me great. And don't lie to me. You'd love that as well. When they eventually put you in a box and stick you in the ground, you don't want someone to stand at your funeral and say, yeah, she was mediocre. Yeah, he was kind of average. You want someone that says, they were great. They re- so what does greatness look like? What does it look like? What does success genuinely look like? How do you and I become great in the eyes of God? That's the question I want us to answer this morning. I want you to walk out of here knowing what it takes to become great. Because that's what you want for your life anyway, don't you? So I'm going to show you how you can become great starting from today. And has it got anything to do with the way we dress? Has it got anything to do with our shoe choice and the statement we make with those? According to a man called John Malloy, it's got a lot to do with our shoes. It's got a lot to do with our dress. John Malloy wrote a book called Dress for Success. And he wrote the book off the back of a conversation he had with a politician. This politician was failing in all of the polls. He wasn't making it in politics. And he came to John Malloy, and John Malloy just changed the way he dressed, rebranded him, if you like. Changed his shirt colors, changed the kind of shoes he wore, just changed his look. And suddenly, he didn't change his policies, but suddenly, because he changes the way he dressed, he got elected and he started making law. And so he wrote this book of Dress for Success. And if you read his book, he says some very interesting things. He says this in the book, people believe that a man who wears bow ties will always tell lies. So don't wear bow ties. He says in the book, the blue is the color of authority. So if you want you know, people to think that you've got some authority behind you, wear blue. He also says in the book uh, that people trust a man who wears a white shirt. You want to be trusted, wear a white shirt. That's what he says in the book. I scoured that book from cover to cover to see what he says about check shirts and jeans. Nothing. Not a bean. So I don't know whether I'm dressing for success or not uh, right now. But it's an interesting concept that he comes out with. It's a load of bunkum in my opinion, but it's an interesting concept. Because John the Baptist certainly didn't dress for success. We'll come on to what his dress was like a little bit later on. And yet, this flip-flop wearing, desert-dwelling preacher guy was called the greatest man that ever lived by Jesus. So how do you and I become great in the eyes of God? It's the big question this morning. And to answer that question, we've got to start at the beginning, which is always a good place to start. Let's start with how John got born, because he had a crazy birth. In fact, if you spend any time looking in the Bible, some of the big characters in the Bible, they had some weird beginnings, some crazy starts. Jesus. I mean, Jesus. He was born of a 14-year-old virgin girl. And he was born in kind of a, a, a piece of rock that had been cut out of the rock so that animals could shelter from the storm. And when he was born, he was, he was kind of laid in the place where cattle eat from a feeding trough that's a crazy way to begin life isn't it even if you are the son of God and there's lots of those characters in the Bible Moses 
You know, Moses was nearly murdered at birth, and they kind of managed to save him and stick him in a little reed basket. Moses, who led all the people out of, his, uh, out of Egypt, Israel's great leader, one of the big heroes of the Bible, nearly murdered at the start of his birth, stuck in a little reed basket called a Moses basket, it's where we get the name from, and shoved off down the river, hoping that he would be safe. There's another guy in the Bible called Isaac. He was born to a couple who struggled the whole of their lives with infertility problems. And John the Baptist had a similar start, a crazy beginning. He was born to an aging couple called Zachariah and Elizabeth. And Zachariah and Elizabeth were very old. In fact, their get up and go had got up and gone years ago. But suddenly, they'd been praying for years for a child, and they thought it was all over because they'd got too old. But they find themselves queuing up one minute for their pension check, and the next minute wandering into Tesco's buying nappies with money. That's where they'd got to. That's how strange this whole thing uh, um, had occurred. It says in Luke chapter 1 verse um, 13, the angel said, don't be afraid, Zachariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son and you are to name him John. And Zachariah looks at the angels and say, angel and says, no, nah, that ain't going to happen. That ain't going to happen on two accounts. Number one, it ain't going to happen because if I had a son, I wouldn't call him John. Don't you know, angel, the tradition around these parts is that if you have a son, you call him after dad, or at least you call him after another member of the family, he would be called Zachariah Jr. We don't have any Johns in our family. Number two, the second reason why this isn't going to happen is because look how old I am. You know, my get up and go, got up and gone years back. It's just not going to happen. Fast forward a couple of verses to verse 20. The angel says this, since, <laughs> since you didn't believe what I said, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the child is born, for my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Angel says, listen, John, this is, uh, Zachariah, this is going to happen. This is going to happen, but you're going to have to shut up and wait patiently for it. And eventually it does happen. Little baby gets born, and all the friends and family gather around Elizabeth, the mum, and they, they're sitting chatting to her, and of course they coo over the baby. And then they ask the big question, what are you going to call him? And Elizabeth, the mum, says, we're going to call him John. And because all the friends and family realise that you never question a hormonal mum, they just stepped back a bit and thought, this isn't going to happen. How are we going to find out what they're really going to call him? I know. We'll go and ask dad. So they come across to Zachariah. And as they're walking to Zachariah, they think, oh, hang on a minute. He can't speak. We're going to have to use some kind of sign language. So it says in verse uh, 62, that, uh, they used gestures to ask the baby's father what he wanted to name him. He motioned for a writing tablet. First mention of an iPad in the Bible. <laughs> That's not true, by the way, in case some of you were thinking that was true. Uh, <clears throat> and to everyone's surprise, he wrote, his name is John. Instantly, Zechariah could speak again, and he began praising God. So, to be seen as great in the eyes of God, do you have to have a unique birth? <laughs> well, you and I know the answer to that, don't we? Yes. Yeah, you do. You need to have a unique birth to be seen as great in the eyes of God. Now, I don't know about your birth. I don't know whether you were born on a bus. I don't know whether you were born in a nice comfy bed in a hospital. I don't know if you were born in a bathtub. But what I do know is this. Your birth was unlike anybody else's. Why? Because you, my friend, are unlike anybody else. So some of you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see back. You don't like the gray hairs. You don't like the bald head. You don't like the wobbly bits. God does. God loves you as you are. You are uniquely made. You are wonderfully made. You are fearfully made. There is no one quite like you. You are one of a kind. 
and realizing that, I am convinced, is the beginning of greatness. And here's why. It was a couple of months back, I was sat with my dad in his house in London, and we, uh, he just pulled out of the cupboard, like everybody seems to have, he pulled out of the cupboard a stack of old photo albums, and there was a whole bunch of photos in there that I'd never seen before. And as I looked through those old photos, I started to learn things that I never knew before. For example, one of the things I learned was there was a picture of my mum in a bikini on Brighton Beach on her honeymoon in 1956. My mum was a looker. (laughs) My dad had chosen well. She was cool. Who knew? And then, and then, there was a picture of my dad at the same kind of age I am now. And I looked at that picture of my dad and I thought, that's crazy. It's like looking into a mirror. He looks just like me. Who knew? It didn't matter how far I tried to get away from it, I couldn't deny it. The family resemblance was there for everyone to see. The truth is, the truth is, whether you would call yourself a Christ follower or not, whether you would call yourself a Christian or not, and by the way, if you are not a Christian, if you decided that and you're here maybe for the time because you're curious and you're checking it out you need to know you are so welcome you need to know you're not the only one here there's a load of people that come every week who have the same thinking as you do and you also need to know there's a sense in which this church is designed with you in mind so you need to feel incredibly welcome but even if you're not a Christian you need to understand this truth you have an uncanny resemblance to God you do when people see you when people look at you And it seems like a theologically illegal thought, but when they do, they catch a glimpse of your Father in heaven. The family resemblance is there. There's something about you that gives the family resemblance away. I don't know what it is about you. Maybe for you, it's it's your desire for relationships. Like God, you don't like to be on your own. You love the sense of friendship. You love the sense of community. You love being with people just like God. Maybe that's the part of the family resemblance that you give away. Maybe for you, it's your your creativity. You hate things just to be functional. I mean, look at your garden. Look at the way you organize your office desk. Look at the way you decorate your house. Look at the clothes you wear. You hate functionality. You love creativity, just like God. Maybe for you, it's this spiritual side of you. For for a long time, you've yearned, you've desired, desired to go beyond the kind of material And start to search for some meaning and some purpose, just like God. The family resemblance is there for everyone to see. When the Bible, right at the very start of the Bible, the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, God wants to make this clear to his people. So he says this, God made human beings to be like himself. Men and women, he made you to be like him. And when you realize that there is only one of you because God made you and threw away the mold, and when you realize that you were made to be like God... It's the beginning of true greatness in any human being. There is only one you. There's one Mona Lisa, one Robin Hood. There's only one QE2. And although others share the 100-acre wood, there's only one Winnie the And while some species search for a gadgeteer as good, for James Bond, there's only one Q. There's only one Nina Ritchie. There's only one mouse called Mickey. And I know it's tricky, but there's only one you. Roses are red. Violets are blue. Genetics have proved it. There's only one you. Are you getting it now? And there was only one John the Baptist. And there was one moment when John was out of earshot. Jesus was talking to John's followers. Without John listening. And he was talking to his followers about his uniqueness. And Jesus said this to his followers in Luke chapter 7. He said, what kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? And you've come out into the desert. You've heard about this flip-flop wearing desert preacher dude. 
<laughs> and what kind of bloke did you expect to see out here? Do you expect to see some guy in his finery? Now, were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No, Jesus says. People who wear beautiful clothes and live in luxury are found in palaces. Which begs the question, doesn't it? What kind of clothes did John wear then? Mark chapter 1 verse 6 tells us very plainly. It says this, His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair. Bit itchy. And he wore a leather belt round his waist. And look, it even tells us what he ate. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. I mean, this was big contrast to the religious leaders of the day. The religious leaders of the day wore the, wore the finest clothes cut from the finest cloth. And they ate at the best restaurants and ate the finest food at the finest tables. John, John wore the kind of clothes you pick up at a second-hand charity shop. And he was on the ant and deck get me out of here bug diet. You know, he had a weird kind of diet as well. And as I've thought more about John the Baptist, I thought to myself, you know, he probably would never, ever be employed by any church in this country. I mean, just by the way he looked, he would frighten people, wouldn't he? And, and if you read a bit more of his story, you found out that he didn't have a lot of tact. He said some pretty strange things, some pretty strong things to some very influential people. I can't see many churches employing someone like John the Baptist, but Jesus called him great. Jesus called him the greatest. And the truth is, you don't need to be weird. You don't need to be wacky. You don't need to wear stupid, odd clothes. You don't need to eat bugs to be seen as great in the eyes of God. You can stand out from the crowd. You can be seen great in the eyes of God just by the way you live. You can stand out from the crowd by being faithful to one spouse. And be seen great, great in the eyes of God. You can stand out from the crowd by being the only one at school that doesn't cheat and doesn't backbite about your fellow students. And you can be seen great in the eyes of God. You can stand out from the crowd by being the only neighbour down the street who doesn't gossip about the other neighbours. And you'll be seen great in the eyes of God. You can stand out from the crowd by being the only employee who works hard, gives above and beyond, who doesn't cheat on their expenses. And who doesn't complain about the bosses all the time. And you can be seen great in the eyes of God. And John, despite his radical dress sense, his odd diet, he became incredibly popular. I mean, crowds flocked out into the wilderness, out into the desert, just to hear him speak. He gathered a huge congregation around him. And then one day, in the midst of his speaking, in the midst of his talking, the crowds had flocked, the crowds were listening. And one day, as the crowds kept coming, John noticed one particular face. It was him. It was the Messiah. And he starts saying, there he is, everybody. Look, it's not about me, it's about him. Here's the dude I've been talking about. He's the Messiah. He's the one. And in John chapter 129, he says, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And everybody who'd gathered around John went, really? You've been telling us about this Messiah? He showed up. They left John and they went and stood around Jesus. They became Jesus followers. They became disciples of Jesus. And everybody left John and came to Jesus except for a few hardcore John fans who stayed put. They were disappointed with this whole deal. They were getting angry about this whole deal because they, their greatness was tied up with John's greatness and they were perceiving that John's greatness was diminishing because everyone had gone to Jesus. It wasn't, but that's their perception. And so they come to John and they say, John, Rabbi, John 3, 26, the man, not the son of God anymore, the man, Jesus, who was with you, has begun baptizing. John, that's your job. He's not called Jesus the baptizer. You're called John the Baptist, John the baptizer. It's, he's not just nicked your followers, he's nicked your job as well. 
And now everyone's going to him. And John gets annoyed. You can hear it in his voice. He gets angry. John chapter 3 says this to his followers. Listen, you yourselves can testify. You've heard me say it time and time again that I am not the Messiah. I'm just a signpost. I'm sent ahead of him. Then he says this most beautiful thing. And if you've fallen asleep at this point, now's the time to wake up. I'll tell you when you can drop off again, but now's the time to wake up because this is golden. He says this, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom, it's kind of like our best man, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. And he's full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. You see, in Jewish culture, the best man, the friend of the bridegroom, had one main task. When the wedding was over, the friend of the bridegroom would take the beautiful bride and he'd take her to the bridal tent. Beautiful tent with cushions and bedding and silk sheets. And he would put the bride in the bridal tent so that she could wait for her groom. And the friend of the bride would stand on guard at the entrance, which was a tougher job think because the tent had to be in utter darkness and he had to make sure no one got into the bride except the bridegroom so he would wait and he would listen and joy would leap within him when he heard the bridegroom's voice and he'd let the bridegroom in to see the bride I think this is what made John great in the eyes of God because he's saying this is my role I'm the friend I am not the groom this is not all about me the bride does not belong to me I'm just the friend and then John comes out with this huge statement which has become one of the biggest and most famous verses in the Bible John chapter 3 verse 30 he's talking about Jesus and John says listen he must increase and I must decrease He must increase, and I must decrease. You want to know how to become great? He must, and you must. It's the only way to find greatness. I find it fascinating. I really do. Because John knew that greatness didn't depend on the things you wore. I mean, he wore flip-flops and camel hair and ate bugs. John wouldn't have liked what John Malloy wrote in Dress for Success. He knew that greatness came from humility. He knew that the waiter up is always down. He must increase, I must decrease. You know why the early church picked December the 25th to celebrate the birth of Jesus? No one quite knows when Jesus was born, the exact day. But the early church picked on December the 25th as the time to celebrate the birth of Christ. Why? Because in the calendar, when it gets to December the 25th, that's when the the days begin to get longer. Jesus, the light, was coming into the world. The days were getting longer, the light was increasing. You know when the church traditionally celebrate the birthday of John the Baptist? June the 25th. Why? Because that's the time when the days get shorter. That's the time when it gets darker. That's the time the light begins to decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. The problem with that is it flies in the face of our current culture, doesn't it? That's not the way we're taught to behave because we think success and greatness comes from the way we dress, the footwear we have, the clothes we wear, the people we meet, the amount of money in our bank account, the postcode we've chosen to live in. That's where we think our success comes from. And we find it hard in this look after number one, dress for success culture, to understand that the only way to find true greatness is in humility. And if you and I find it hard, man alive, Jesus' early followers found it even harder. 
I mean, they had Jesus there in the flesh right in front of them, and yet still they couldn't grasp it. There was one time when Jesus' close followers were having a fight about this deal. Philip saying, I think, I think one day I should stand on the right-hand side of the throne of Jesus. And Andrew saying, no, 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 it should be me there. Don't you remember that time I did this and I said that? I'm sure he thinks greater of me. I'm sure I should have that position. And all the 12 disciples together were almost having a fight. They were bickering. They were arguing about who was the greatest. And Jesus cannot believe what he's hearing. And he steps into the middle of this argument. Luke chapter 22, within minutes, they were bickering over who of them would end up the greatest. But Jesus intervened. Whoa, boys, stop this arguing. Now I can't believe what I'm hearing. And then he kind of like a, a, you know, a, a, a father figure. He says some strong stuff to them. Jesus intervened. Kings, he says, like to throw their weight around and be people in authority. And people in authority like to give themselves fancy titles. It's not going to be that way with you. Can you imagine that moment? Stunned silence. That's what the world does. They dress for success, have fancy titles. It is not going to be the way with you. Let the senior among you become like the junior. Let the leader act the part of the servant. And then, and then, Jesus takes that teaching and he goes beyond teaching and he starts to set an example. He does something stunning. They're in the upper room. It's just before Jesus is led away to be crucified. Him and his disciples are sharing a final meal together. They call it the Last Supper. And as the meal begins to fade, as the meal begins to finish, Jesus stands up and he runs across to a table and he gets a towel, puts it over his shoulder. And people start murmuring and looking around and he picks up a jug with some water in and he pours the water into the bowl. And people stop around the table What's going to happen now? And their rabbi, their Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus himself, did something that no one else had ever done. I mean, yeah, there were stories about young kids. One or two in the ancient writings, stories of young kids who washed the feet of their parents. There was the odd story about a pupil who'd washed the feet of a teacher. But never, ever in history was there any stories about someone with a higher status, a higher standing, washing the feet of someone with a lower standing. It had never happened in history until that evening. And with their jaws like a cartoon stuck on the floor, Jesus knelt on the floor in front of his disciples with a bowl of water and a towel. And he started to wash the muck off their feet. Now listen, if I came out there right now and started to wash your feet, it wouldn't be that unpleasant a task, to be fair. Because most of you, not all of you, most of you had a wash this morning. You wear nice socks and nice shoes. And if you did tread in anything, you know, that cars spill on the road, then your shoes will absorb it, your socks will absorb it, it's fine. In Jesus' day, people wore flip-flops, people wore sandals. And there were no cars leaving oil spills. The main mode of transport was donkeys and horses. And Jesus washed all that muck that they left on the road off the disciples' feet. you know what? You know, the Jewish slaves, it was even too menial a task for the Jewish slaves to wash people's feet. It was left for the Gentile slaves. And Jesus washed his disciples' feet. And then, and then with their jaws open, silence around the room, they couldn't believe what was going on. Jesus then said, right boys, John chapter 13, 15, I've set you an example. 
I have gone beyond teaching. I have set you an example, and you should do for each other exactly what I've done for you. Now listen, if you're a Christian here this morning, if you're not a Christian, you're off the hook with this, okay? You don't have to do any of this. You just get to listen to how crazy Christians are. But if you are a Christian here this morning, these are your marching orders. I mean, what don't you understand about that verse? Jesus couldn't have made it any clearer. I've set you an example. I've done this thing. Now you go do it to each other as well. He goes beyond teaching. And he shows us what needs to be done. He says, you go do it as well. You go do it as well. You know, for years and years and years, for centuries, the church has argued about whether or not it should get involved with the dirty world outside. How on earth are you supposed to wash the feet of a dirty world unless you touch it? Set you an example. Now go go do the same. Now go do the same. Becoming great in the eyes of God, becoming great in the eyes of God will involve one of these. It'll involve a towel, and it'll involve a bowl of water, and it'll involve him increasing and you decreasing. Leon, come and play for us. You know, I, I, read, a, I read a book a few years back now, and I reread it recently. It's called The Volunteer Revolution. And the author of a book is a church leader called Bill Hybels. And in the book, he talks about this very story we've looked at, Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And he writes a chapter towards the end of the book called The Great Gamble. And in that chapter, he leaves a challenge to all the readers. And it's this challenge that I leave with you this morning. Bible says this in the book. For six months, take The Great Gamble. Follow the model of Jesus with reckless abandon. Take advantage of every opportunity to serve, even if it seems something insignificant. Be the one who opens the car door for others. Choose the back seat of the car so your friend can sit in the front. Take out the rubbish even though it's not usually your job. Volunteer to stack the chairs after the meeting. Take the arm of the elderly woman negotiating the stairs in the department store. Open your eyes. Keep your servant's towel handy. Then he says, monitor the condition of your heart week to week and ask yourself, am I gaining or am I losing? Listen, if you aren't a Christian here this morning, why don't you try this anyway? Even if you don't believe the things that Jesus is, why don't you give this thing a go and see whether you gain or whether you lose? Because he carries on. He says, if you want to, try it the other way around. Every chance you have, put yourself at the center. Be demanding. Ask the world to revolve around you. Push your way to the front of the line. Disappear when it's time for the dirty work, the menial tasks. Then he says, step back and honestly assess. Are you becoming closer to God and people or more isolated? Is your life fuller or emptier? Do you feel fulfilled or frustrated? And then he concludes with this. Sooner or later, he says, everybody has to decide where to place their bets on life's great gamble. Where have you placed yours? On a self-centered lifestyle or a Jesus model of servanthood? You want to find some meaning for your life? You want to be stuck in a box and put in the ground and people just say, she was great. He was great. You want to walk out of a room and people turn to the other people left in the room and say, man, he's great. She's, she knows what it is to be great. You want that to happen? Then grab a serving towel, pour out some water in a bowl and start washing people's feet. Is the great gamble worth it? Is it? If Jesus is right about this stuff, if he's right about this stuff, 
then this seems to be the way to the great life that you and I want more than anything else. I'm willing to place my bets on it. I'm going to give it a go.